welcome everyone to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. We are happy to welcome today Benjamin Cohen, who is Associate Professor of Engineering Studies and Environmental Studies at Lafayette College in the US. Today he'll be talking about his book, Pure Adulteration, Cheating on Nature in the Age of Manufactured Food, which came out with University of Chicago Press in 2019. So we'll give it over to you, Ben. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for this forum. And it's good to see uh, all of you here. Um, I think a couple of you have heard parts of this before. So maybe your questions will, will be at the, the, the second level. Um, I wanna talk and give a, a, like a, a quick preface and then a, a brief overview, maybe 10, 15 minutes tops. So we have more space for us to collectively talk. Um, and I'm, I began thinking about this book with the question, how do you, how do you shift a food economy from agrarian to industrial? And I don't know if I have the full answer. And I know that that shift, which is one that occurred in the U.S. from the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s, was neither preordained nor inevitable. But in pure alteration, I tried to explain the changes that were wrought by such a transition, uh, wrought by new systems of manufactured food, um, by looking to the ways people were confused by the changes underway, uh, by looking to the ways that people resisted those changes and how they tried to articulate what they were losing and what they were gaining. Um, so the book in total is a cultural, environmental, and scientific history of the pure food crusades of the later 1800s, uh, which they called the era of adulteration. And it begins, and this is just an extension of the subtitle, it begins by noting that when humans cheat on each other, we call it adultery. And when they cheat on nature, we call it adulteration. Um, it begins, that is, with the moral dimension of rightness and propriety, that there's a right way to produce, distribute, and sell food, and that there's a wrong way. So when people adulterate food by contaminating it with something that shouldn't be there, um, or by modifying it in ways that aren't fully disclosed, um, they're crossing a line between what's acceptable and what's not. Um, in the later 1800s, those lines were so blurry and unstable and unreliable, ever more so, that people weren't sure what to do. So there was a lot of cognitive dissonance. Um, new foods from factories instead of fields confused eaters uh, because was that okay to do? Was that appropriate um, to process food so far away from its field or its farm-based identity? Um, wasn't that progress though, some would argue. Wasn't it a mark of more effective ways to feed people? Um, well, not if you're going to cheat me, said others, not if you're trying to sell me a bill of goods, not if you're trying to pass off gilded for gold. Um, gilded, that thin covering of a substance that's made to trick you into thinking that it's really gold, although it's not. Um, plus, it's not better if those new foods are going to make me sick and I don't know what's happening. Um, so... I wrote this book to understand and then explain how people understood and explained their way amongst a rapidly changing food system. Um, one that was shifting from agrarian to industrial. Um, I'm a historian of science, technology, and the environment, and I focus on food and agriculture. I had written a book about the origins of agricultural chemistry in the first half of the century. Um, but in large part or overall, I consider this book a work of environmental humanities. I do think it fits your series quite well. Um, it draws or I draw from cultural iconography, literary text, satire and fiction, um, environmental ethics, capitalist histories, um, and more, the famous and more, uh, to build this history. So I'll be interested to hear your thoughts uh, after this overview. And uh, 
to wit, let me let me give you the overall arc of the story first. Then I'll give a quick sketch of its three main parts. Um, the thread of the book is the changing concept of purity itself. Um, adulteration is an age-old concern. It's not new in the 19th century. As long as people have been buying food, they've been worried about its identity. Uh, but the fight against it, the fight for purity um, or wholesomeness uh, or health or sanctity um, was waged within community contours of well-established cultural norms as people argued over adulteration for centuries, for millennia. It was an agrarian problem in an agrarian world well into the mid 19th century. Uh, what changes across the next half century is that debates over purity move off the land and into the store. Um, so here, I wrote this down, I'll just quote from my preface. Um, the very concept of a pure food changed from one grounded in the environmental work of agriculture, community, and cooking to one that was outsourced, so to speak, to agents with certified analyses working at the end of the food life cycle at the storefronts and grocery shelves of labeled items. Uh, purity had, be, had been an environmentally grounded notion and it became a scientific concept by the early 20th century. Um, what mattered by then was that the analysis on the label matched the contents of the package. So I'll do one more little quote here. I was doing that thing when you're doing a talk where you try to paraphrase what you wrote. I was like, well, I already wrote it here. So what, what am I doing? Um, the transition from an agriculturally anchored agency, the USDA, which is founded in 1862 here in the United States, to a consumer anchored one, the FDA, which is founded after the Pure Food Act of 1906. So uh, 54 years later, uh, 44 years later, um, followed the shifts. That transition followed the shifts from field to kitchen from farm to city, from producer to consumer-oriented viewpoints. Those trends, those shifts all grew substantially across the 1900s, I think we all know, but their foundations were established early in the century. So to show this arc from mid 1800s to early 1900s, the book works through three main parts. Um, and these are the sections of the book. Um, part one deals with the cultural history that gave shape to the era of adulteration. So here I set the scene by recognizing that angst over purity was angst over authenticity, the real thing, the genuine article, um, that worries over adulteration were worries over deception. This was a moral calculus. Um, in an age of confidence men, uh, con men, and hucksters and charlatans and swindlers, uh, people were worried that their food was as insincere as the con men were. Um, in a line that I think summarizes the whole book, um, I write that trusting food meant trusting people. And I often just repeat that over and over, it even comes up in class when I'm talking about this kind of stuff. Um, I began, the book starts with a tale of a con man from France who papers had called the greatest swindler of the age. There's this guy, Alfred Peroff. Um, I talked about him. I remember way back, we did this like, a, um, what was it called? Like flash stories um, at ASCH, like uh, seven or eight years ago. And I did like a five minute story on this guy, Alfred Peroff. Um, he was a chemist, he was French, and his big con was, if you haven't read the book, um, the dot, 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 wait for it, his big con was margarine, uh, fake butter. He was doing the fake butter con. Um, and this is what got him vaunted as the greatest swindler of, of the late 19th century, this age of swindlers. They're like, this guy's the worst one. He's running fake butter scams. Um, fake butter margarine, oleo margarine, had been invented in 1869. And, uh, you know, I'd say for the next hundred years, 
it worried people over its validity as a butter substitute. Maybe people today still worry about its validity as a substitute. Uh, so after a few conman stories, I also lay out the changing infrastructure of food markets from general stores to urban groceries. Um, and that grocer's market, which we now call the grocery store, um, that was the main node of interaction for increasing numbers of people in the later 19th century. It was the grocer who people suspected of cheating them. It was the grocer who was at the front line of fears over adulteration, deception, and dishonesty. Um, so that uh, accounts for much of the first part. The second part is, I think, the most environmentally focused. And this is where I look at my three main case studies to understand where did all these so-called adulterants come from in the first place? Instead of just trying to look at, here's what people were worried about, I was much more interested in like, why were they even there? Like, how did they even arrive? Um, so it draws out, this section draws out the global geographies of, of three, um, three of the big adulterants of the time. One is margarine, uh, one is cottonseed oil, and the third is glucose. Um, and that was a widely maligned trinity of new fake foods at the time. Margarine was fake butter, or so they called it, while others said, what's the big deal? This is, this is an improvement. It's not so bad. Fake isn't bad. That's entailed in it. How are you even calling this an adulterant? The, you know, the sub question is part of the main question. Some people say this is adulteration. Others say that's not even an adulteration. What are we even talking about here? Um, Cottonseed oil was uh, used to, well, if you don't like it, you'd say it was used to contaminate or cut lard or olive oil. So it was fake lard and fake olive oil. And glucose, which you know now we know as blood sugar, was at the time this startup alternative sugar that was made in factories. Uh, the descendant of grape sugar that had been around for several decades, and eventually it was corn sugar. It was sugar that they made from corn. Um, this part also shows just how hard it was to know what your food was, if it was safe or where it was coming from. Um, it also has a few con man stories, not just Paraf, but they're laced throughout the book. Um, and it shows how entangled the new ostensibly artificial foods were in trade patterns in land management practices in industrial development, in global politics and in burgeoning capitalist infrastructure. And to trust these new foods, you had to trust people. Um, so part three then moves on to the ways that chemists, analysts, public health officials, and other scientists began to shift the ways that people policed food and its identity. They were the ones that you wanted to trust or they wanted to be trusted. Um, if it was hard to know if your food was advertised, was as advertised and healthy, you could soon count on the analysts to tell you that it was. So all throughout the debate at hand, was about border patrol in the sense of monitoring the boundary between a pure and an adulterated good. Like there's this line between them. It's not straight. It's not secure. It's ever changing. And about of, uh, I would say, good old fashioned social constructivism. Um, the point is that there's no such thing as a pure product and an adulterated product just sitting there like waiting for its name tag. Um, we have to make it so. People had to make it so. They had to build these categories. They had to draw the line between the two of them. So who's going to patrol that border? Um, you have to decide when too much manipulation is unacceptable and when it's just right or just enough. Because uh, all, all foods are, are manipulated. All foods are the product of some process. When we deem that process acceptable, uh, or when they did, they called it natural. Uh, or in the term of their error, they called it pure. 
when we deem it unacceptable, when we say you've gone too far, you've manipulated it too much, this is not okay. Uh, we call it adulterated or sullied or contaminated or in their term, artificial. So in all cases during the era of adulteration, what they were really grappling with was a fight over the difference between natural and artificial as argued through this proxy debate of purity and adulteration. So that the end of the book is in the early 20th century after the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, um, at a time when purity had become a scientific concept. And this is the arc of the book where we end that, I think it's the last line of the book, purity had become a scientific concept. It was removed from its agricultural environmental context and instead examined under a microscope. Its identity was narrowed and reduced from a more fully embodied agricultural understanding of propriety of what is acceptable as our ability to know food was structured instead through new marketplace relationships. And we've been fighting about that ever since. And I think for, uh, I'll keep it on the short end and, and leave it at that for now. Thanks, Ben. Uh, good, hoping for more stories of con men. Uh, that's always entertaining. And, and your presentation took me actually back to yeah, really the beginning of my career as a historian, because I started out working with early 20th century home economics. Uh, so the, the scientific training in housekeeping and food and yeah, how to run a home for, uh, for women. And I did not really, I don't really remember this part of discussion coming up about, you know, the changing you know, a composition of food and the discussions there. Uh, it could be that things have happened in the, God, more than 20 years now since I worked on that. Uh, but I wonder if you could say a little bit about the, the consumer side of this. Uh, in a way, it's a standard question, but I think it's also quite a, a, a relevant one. So you say there were some uncertainties about, you know, how to know about food, but what did people do with it in, in, in practice? Yeah, the, I mean, it's a good question. I, home economist, domestic science comes up, <clears throat> excuse me, throughout the book, but has its, its most attention in, in one of the early chapters in the, in the grocer's chapter. And I have a line in there. Uh, I think the opening line is about Ellen Swallow Richards, who was one of the principal figures of that time, you know, real leader in, in the domestic science movement. It's um, like for me, this is an audience question. For all of us, maybe we've heard that name, but to me it was, why is this person not more famous every day around now? Just the amount of things that she did to contribute to helping um, housewives principally uh, understand what their food was by saying, you don't have to be tricked by these new fancy pants, chemical manipulations. You can learn chemistry and do this kind of stuff at home. You can do the analysis in your own kitchen to understand it. Um, as I say in the chapter, uh, it's possible and it's probably true that maybe not everybody knows her or she's not as famous because this was also problematic. She was part of the, the reduction of food identity to its scientific constituents. So she was, she was a reductionist and this did kind of pave the way or help contribute to the scientization of food as opposed to you know, culinary skills or knowing it because you're a cook or because you manage a house. But um, the impetus for a lot of that domestic science was um, 
we need to understand how to train housewives in, in knowing what foods that they're, they're cooking for their families, or, uh, there was a large component of, um, you know, there's a class issue here. We need to train housewives or we need to train the cooks that you hire. So they know how to feed your family because you're all rich and you're living in new England and, uh, you have servants and, and, you know, housekeepers, um, either way, the, the, Development of domestic science is built in relationship with these new changing food ways, um, new changing class structures of who manages the house, and uh, new changing access to defining what the food is in general. So you can think of um, you can think of the early phase of domestic science or home economics, even the changing of that terms from the economy of the home to domestic science is a like as it's you know implicit in your question of Pinarne. Like that's one of the achievements of this era is to build this new form to say um, it's a limitation to call it the economy of the home. Um, we want to elevate it to this vaunted status of a science. So we're kind of chasing the authority of science, which I would think like, I don't know that you need to do that. Like, uh, why do we have to trust the scientists more than you? But they were playing the game that they had to. Um, but you think of like Catherine Beecher uh, in the generation before that, she was probably the most read a home economist writer who was talking about similar things of a changing food landscape. You know, this is 1840s, 50s, 60s. Um, Catherine Beecher, her, her sister, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, they would co-author things. Their father was this uh, preacher who spoke a lot about truth and lies. And um, even he, he I, I use a quote of his about lying food. Your, your food is lying to you to really accentuate that, that notion of honesty and propriety. And so early home economics is also indebted to that theme of presenting honest food to an honest home. And then it moves in those next centuries by the early 20th century into a more um, scientifically defined uh, sensibility about why you're doing that, which starts to take it away from the earlier moral phase. It feels like now it's not so much a moral thing about honesty, it's more uh, about the truth. Like, is this really what you say it is? We can detect it with our equipment and tell you. Thanks. Yeah, it does. I mean, it does sound very familiar also, this, this emphasis on the science from what I uh, looked at, that's particularly for Norway. So the kitchen as laboratory, that's, mm -hmm. they were like very explicit there. Right. So we have uh, a question from Jessica. I'm going to unmute you there. Hi, Ben. Um, thank you so much. It was really interesting to hear you talk a bit about the book. Um, when you were talking about sort of uh, co confidence um, and, and, and tricksters and, and that sort of dynamic, it got me thinking also about sort of early 20th century histories of agriculture and, and food crops and seeds and, and how difficult it was at the time, like, I, I guess, to streamline things. There was huge pressure from scientists to streamline um, uh, like crop synonyms and stuff. And, and there was a huge problem with, uh, what's the word, um, like, uh, uh, seed vendors, etc., seed catalogs, listing listing things under different names and, and constantly shifting around. It sort of it reminds me a lot of this sort of um, dynamic of of uh, the con men that you mentioned earlier. And I guess I'm just curious because that sort of same impetus to purity that you mentioned in the sort of domestic sphere seems to operate like from another angle within agricultural science at the time, like wanting to streamline things, get it organized, make sure things were what they said they were. Um, I wonder if you see those two as sort of being related dynamics as like one taking place in the household perhaps and 
the other side within agricultural science? Maybe I'm making this up. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. I, I think um, for me, I feel like they're part of a common sphere of larger cultural debate. And I may be saying that um, I may be overly influenced uh, by some of the early work of Jackson Lears, who was very influential to me. And um, he wrote a book, Fables of Abundance and No Place of Grace, that says quite a bit. These are books from the, you know, the early 90s, late 80s. Um, to me, his contours of cultural history at that time, which I think people have done well to amend those in the decades since then, but uh, they brought to me this view of the common sphere of concern about authenticity that I'm not surprised plays out in the halls of agricultural scientists. Um, and you can see that at the, at the USDA, um, especially the Bureau of Chemistry. Um, they're the ones that become the FDA, the Bureau of Chemistry of the USDA, grows into the FDA. Um, and that's where main, the main federal, um, well, you know, you, you know this, the, this is where some, some of the larger organized agricultural chemistry and science is happening. So I'm not, I'm not surprised. I think you're, although I don't know as much about the seed part, um, I think you're right. I think they come from a common world. All right, we have more questions here in the chat. So first, Anas uh, Bhattacharya. See. Um, uh, thank you. Yes. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Cohen. Um, um, I have been reading your book, and uh, fascinating uh, it is. My question is that, um, from what I can understand, you're leading us to a trajectory of uh, industrialization of food. While dealing with the with the with the dichotomies or binaries of natural and artificial, now, I, and 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 it's an it's, it's an interesting binary, and of course it it uh, it exists today as well as you've also pointed out. But it, it in the so when you end at nineteen oh six with the Food and Drugs Act in uh, USA, it seems to end uh, with with the with a scientific resolution. With, with a scientific resolution, a scientist, uh, a scientist resolution of the of the contents of the contents of the of these foods, I was wondering as to the aesthetic aspects of the natural versus artificial, because to the consumer it is the aesthetic aspect that would also be of concern and, and is still of concern today. And uh, so, you know, is, is that a separate trajectory altogether? Where does the aesthetic aspect of this natural versus artificial and this judging of what is pure, this policing of boundaries, as you so evocatively called it, did, did, did aesthetics in, uh, was aesthetics involved at all in this policing of boundaries? Oh, I, I, I'm think, I mean, it's a really good question. I, I'm thinking two things and I'll have to see if they actually connect. But in my mind, I'm thinking two things right away. One is that uh, there was concern at the time that the aesthetic considerations were um, subordinated to the chemical or analytical ones. So people at the time were arguing that we should have more consideration for aesthetic considerations. And um, in that sense, we may be understanding it in different ways, but I'm thinking of aesthetic, uh, not just um, how it looks, but how it, how it tastes and how ingredients work in a kitchen and how you cook and how you can establish um, even culinary knowledge or um, things of the sort. 
So on, on the one hand, um, I, I do think people were worried that it was being subordinated and they were rejecting the dichotomy. Like they didn't like that binary that it's either one or it's the other. Um, and the other thing I'm thinking is that uh, people who have been arguing for reform in how we adjudicate the validity of our foods have for uh, you know, more than a hundred years been arguing that this scientific approach is a limitation and that um, agricultural knowledge, experiential knowledge of understanding food ways from producing it. Um, again, culinary knowledge, gastronomical knowledge of how you prepare meals and how you manipulate ingredients, that those should have a, a, a bigger role in defining what people mean by good or pure or natural. And um, it's a negative consequence that the, the larger administrative state, the institutionalization of food policy, followed the track of a standardized scientific approach. Um, so if I take those two answers together, nine of them really uh, fully address the question, but that's how I'm thinking about the way people at the time would have thought about the question. You can, you can add on too, like if you wanna, uh, another kind of a um, distinction, if you wanna add back, yeah, so I mean, that's it's uh, really interesting to think about something like color, for example, as an aesthetic, how certain, uh, well, you develop artificial uh, colors, right? Colorings, food colorings, um, to make things appear not what they would be, uh, or to make them actually appear how they would be if they were fresh. Right, so you might make something be more green than it would end up to be in a jar. So you add food coloring of a particular kind, I would assume to make it look more natural. Um, or you have the coloring that makes it very unnatural, you know, these bright blues or, or pinks or something that, that don't yeah. appear in nature. All right, so do people talk about that kind of uh, fakery at the time, you know, did, did they see it as, oh, there were natural colorings and then there were artificial colorings? Yeah, absolutely. And immediately you're making me think that we should uh, pop uh, I, I Hazano's book, Visualizing Taste, somewhere in the chat as a good reference, because she really does a great job. I think her book is maybe uh, came out last year. Um, this is from Harvard Press, um, H-I-S-A-N-O. Um, she says so much about this and has a um, a really good take on the development of that artificial colors and what it means, um, which means like her work uh, makes my makes me feel like my examples are more quaint, like they feel quainter and older, like from the 1800s, where I'll go back to a butter example where um, uh, there, there were uh, vibrant, thriving debates over the color of something like margarine. Um, and they had color laws to say that you're not allowed to artificially color it yellow because it would not, it would not naturally, it would normally be plain like white or op opaque almost bland. So they would intentionally color it yellow to make it look like butter. And then state after state would make that illegal. I don't know if there's anybody on the call who has any childhood memories or maybe grandparent stories. This predates me, but people, when I say this, they always talk about how you would buy the dye pack at the store even into the 50s and the 60s. And so it wasn't allowed to be sold as yellow at the store, but when you got home, you could mix it in so that it looked yellow. Um, it's uh, Wisconsin people always bring this up. Like, I think they feel really indebted to it. 
Um, I have an example in there too of how the color pink um, was deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of the United States. And it's, it's one of my favorite examples because, um, and it's to this aesthetic point, um, for those who have read it, you, you've seen that uh, I'm really taken by and get a lot out of satirical commentary, uh, a lot of cartoons and a lot of satires, because to me, they point out, um, they take something which they feel is commonly understood, and then they twist it around. So it, it helps you see that there was something that was commonly understood so that they could pick on it. Um, but one of the things that still cracks me up now is a, a satirical paper called um, uh, Puck at the time made a suggestion in the early 1880s that you should color margarine purple to, to emulate its royal pretensions so that it would seem like it was very kingly. And then a couple of years later, a, a newspaper picked the story up and didn't realize it was satire. This is like the whatever websites now is like not the onion, like people who don't know that it's an onion story. Somebody else picked it up and said, this is a good idea. You should color it purple or pink. And then Vermont did. They passed a law that said, you have to color your margarine pink. And then by the later, uh, by the 1890s, the, the manufacturers of margarine were very upset about this. So they, they staged, a, like they gamed the system. They, they, picked up, they picked a guy who would get caught with it on purpose so they could agitate the courts and have this ruled on in the court system which they did and it got all the way to the Supreme Court. And in 1898, the Supreme Court ruled that you can't color margarine pink because it seems it presents a distaste. It's disgusting and people wouldn't want to eat it. So it was an unfair disadvantage. Um, so I think of like that as a lower scale 1800s version of an issue that only ex accelerates um, probably uh, uh, to, to, the, to the question about different aesthetics only accelerates through Further industrialization, uh, thirty further industrial patterns in the nineteen hundreds. That was way too long, but pink. Fascinating, absolutely. I, I would so. not want pink margarine either. <laughs> so. so, David had some questions. Hey Ben, um, thank you so much for sharing this work. Um, I, I I love this book and. Um, one of the, I think, persistent themes for me to think about um, is trust, who to trust, how to trust. Um, and so these, my two questions sort of expand on the previous points. Um, one is, could you kind of speak to the growing professional knowledge networks around trust and the boundaries in this new food ways era? I'm thinking more specifically about the professional versus the local, like who to trust, and also you can maybe talk about the poison squad in the early 1900s, but it's sort of a, a good example maybe of that. And then kind of related, um, how does labeling and advertising reinforce the material culture of this stuff? How does it reinforce the trust? How, how does it contest the knowledge? You kind of mentioned that with leaders work, I guess, but I'm curious about that. Yeah, I, those are good questions. The, um, there are different ways to think about it. And I, th I think maybe I don't do as much in the book in, in some ways, which are maybe the larger um, institutional political history, especially of the United States and the progressive era increase of trust in governing units by a certain population. So they're building, building the federal state, um, you know, compared to the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century is an increasing trust in governing units in ways that seem so so quaint to us now because people distrust to such a great degree actual you know U.S. government or governance. Uh, but this was the opposite of the time where you know those those modes of trust um, 
in institutions and organizations was on the increase. And science did have a part to play in that. Science wasn't, you know, this, I, I think everybody on this call would know, it's not like this Loctite universally, like it's scientific, therefore it's good. They were still building those mechanisms. Um, but I do think, so I, I think it works in balance with the, the labeling where one of these conditions is an increasing trust in federal oversight in ways that don't exist anymore, but were rising at the time. The other is that um, that advertising branding context and um, like, we know, or, or you know this from um, the early chapters where um, the, the very invention of modern advertising and labeling and branding has so much to do with character. And uh, I was really smitten by thinking of the idea of being impress impressionable and impressing something on somebody where you impress the brand, you press the brand into the substance, just like humans are impressionable. And so you want that, you want it to reflect your inner character. Like you put the impression, you put the trademark, you put the character on the outside and it suggests some node of identity on the inside. So you can look on the surface and you know the depths, you know the interior. And that's what a brand is trying to do. Like you don't take the jar of soup and pour it out on the table and look around. You just look at the outside label and say, well, it says here, it's all, it's all natural um, or it's made from pure ingredients, uh, which is, you know, Heinz, Heinz was really good at this at the time um, with, with condiments and ketchup. They were one of the leaders in this playing off the idea of the label um, indicates uh, as a window onto the purity of the product. Um, so I, th I think these things are working together where the growth of the advertising and marketing industry, which is really invented in the later 1800s, is either benefited by the growth and trust of institutions, or maybe it builds that trust. Um, now, me in retrospect, me today, I, I don't trust any of them. I think they were all trying to swindle us. I think it was all a scam. They were just trying to sell sell a, a bill of goods. Um, uh, but I, I guess I'm not allowed to just, <laughs> as a 21st century historian, I can't just lean on that as the answer. Like, I don't trust them now. I think you're trying to trick me. I don't believe advertisers. Um, but they were building it. It was going forward at the time instead of me looking back retrospectively. Um, I, I mean, I have the same thought too. Like, what do you, how do you feel about it, David? Like you, I think you've got insight to this too, but I, I don't mind hearing back from people too. Like what's, um, what do you think in underlying the question? Yeah, I mean, I was I was laughing when you were, that sort of that last comment because um, I, I was thinking like, uh, you're, they're almost embossing trust onto the actual item, you know, like thinking of like a raised label or something and, and the, the quality of the labor label reflects the quality of the substance. Um, I think that those are all very, uh, really important sort of questions that sparked when I was reading your work. Um, and I think I, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting, um, later, you know, you run into this with chemical, with chemical labeling with like pesticides, which is toward my work. But again, it's some of the same questions about quality and trust and who do we trust. Um, and in that context, you have a much more distinctive emerging sort of commercial science, almost uh, group that businesses are much more sort of desiring rather than doing sort of a public good group of like experiment station personnel or extension um, scientists 
Right. So that's starting to move away um, uh, by the 1940s uh, and then after World War II in the 50s, you really see that distinction, I think. And so labeling becomes more of a marketing question about saving crops by poisoning them rather than um, <laughs> if you do it safely, then the substance will be safe. Right. So the, the applicator has to apply the poison. And if the applicator applies it properly, then the poison properly protects if the applicator does not do that, then the poison can go beyond the target field. Now we all know that that's that's the that's the narrative. That's not the reality. But but yeah. um, I don't know. I, I hope I'm answering your question, Ben. Thanks for letting me kind of expand. Yeah. No, I, I find that fascinating. And um, I was looking at the chat thing too, and sort of like some of these circle back in terms of um, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya mentions like the artisan versus the industrialist. You think of today. And immediately I flashed in my mind to some of like the Brooklyn hipster stuff where I think somebody had mocked up, like you can buy, you can sell a Slim Jim in a package. Like, I don't even know what Slim Jim is. It must be some abomination of sausage or a meat stick. Do people know? I, there's no hands here, but like Slim Jim. But anyways, I would never eat that. But somebody did a version where they had this nice quaint little box. They called it a Slim James. Like... And it was presented so elegantly and it had texture. It was in a nice wooden container. It's like, oh, I'd like to eat this. It looks so nice. And they were just, they, you know, they were playing up the idea that uh, the embossed nature that it has texture and heft somehow indicates, um, as opposed to like this flat plastic container um, that is disgusting or gross or from like a, a 7-Eleven or a convenience store. It's like, no, this is an elegant artisanal product. And we're so deep into this area. You know, we're a hundred years into marketers knowing how to do this stuff where um, it's like, it does look better. A Slim James sounds much better than a Slim Jim. Yeah, Dolly reminded me of one of my favorite examples in that genre, which is uh, one of the beers that uh, Rogue Breweries makes uh, made with uh, yeast they found in the beard of the head brewer. So it's natural or adulterated. <laughs> I've had it actually. It's, it's quite good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I, I'm sorry to jump in outside the questions, but it's like there's a way to tell this narrative that it's all declension, that everything just got worse. But there are so many examples where things were, were better, like that era of you know bread made um, by machine, untouched by human hands, like having packaged bread was, was better. Like having purified water, cleaning water, like you want it to be purified. You want it to be at the end of a process. So more processing is better. Um, you know, tea, uh, tea was a big example in coffee, like tea, not in a brick, but in a packaged prepackaged bag, Lipton and Tetley uh, made their name because they packaged tea and that was seen as better. It was safer. You could trust them because it was in this sealed bag. So it wasn't contaminated. Whereas you might think the opposite, like, oh, it's packaged and it's in this container and this label. And so it's corrupted from its natural origins. Um, that's, this isn't a universal thing. It's not always that case, um, which begets the continuous argument over them. It's hard to police all foods in the same way. Sometimes more processing and more packaging is a vote of confidence in the product. Sometimes it's uh, perceived as, as trickery or conniving. So we have a, a somewhat related question then on health um, from Michael in the chat. So I'll just read it here. So he was wondering about uh, if you could draw up any connections between the U.S. scene that you look at in your book uh, and uh, 
orthodox medical thought about health and food. So he's then also drawing comparisons to the, the emergence of the nature cure movements uh, that appear around this time, the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah, see, that's a really good question. I've had it before, and I think in the past I've dodged it too because it made me think of like, oh yeah, I remember um, I, you know, when I started this project, I was reading up so much on public health history and um, old, old stuff by um, James Young, who was one of the first historians um, that I read who did like the history of the USDA and the history of the FDA and also did the history of quackery and medicine. Um, and um, I'm thinking about, uh, forgetting other names, I think like uh, uh, John Warner is a historian who's written a lot about the nature here. But the question is reminding me like, oh yeah, that was really interesting to me when I started this book. And then I just never really returned to it. So I'm going to admit that that's a question I don't have a good answer for. I'm sure I can kind of wander around and talk about the connections, but um, I'm going to presume that, um, Michael, you might know much more about this than I do. Um, we let it pass, but if you get his question for your next book talk, then, then you have no excuse. You do have to. <laughs> I, I shouldn't be doing the due diligence by now. Exactly. It's a good question. It's, a, it's well-placed. Well, I mean, along the health uh, line, though, I guess what I'm wondering is, how much did contamination play into or thinking about, oh, something's going to be bad food. It's going to be bad for you. Because I, I look back at my medieval sources where I started my history stuff and in urban medieval life, people were always concerned about bad food. In particular, things like, um, you know, getting bad meat from butcher um, and getting meat pies that didn't contain what you thought that they should contain, yeah. right? And and often that that didn't have to do with just, oh, it was wasn't beef and you said it was beef, but it's like it's gonna make me sick and I'm gonna die, right? So I was just wondering in, in your period, is the concern how much does the concern about health and and not dying um uh, because you eat this the motivation versus just oh did I pay for the right thing? Yeah, again, that's spot on. And it actually does help with the nature cure question. So we don't have to entirely dodge it. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, the utopians, the, the Grahamites, Sylvester Graham, Kellogg, Post, um, there's a pretty good literature on their association of food and health that I think I, I glance at, but it didn't become a big part. Um, it probably should have had more to say and it would have helped me answer this question better. But there's that entire body of literature and which is based on, significant and, and large-scale um, shifts in food economies about what good food is that come because of the public health concern. Um, at the time, and in many books since then, the main axis that people would try to drive at is, um, am I being poisoned or am I being cheated? So there's even a great book called Poisoned or Cheated about this, this era. And it was like, all right, I don't like impure foods because I'm being hit in the wallet and I'm not getting what I paid for. That's the cheated part. Or, and so we can resolve that through market mechanisms and through um, economic um, uh, you know, regulation and things like that. There's an avenue to go down to try to address that part. A different angle is the one being poisoned. I don't like this because I'm gonna get sick. And so that would often lead them down a different one. That's a public health response versus an economic regulation response. Um, and they were very vibrant. Those, those were happening at the same time. And I'm sure there would be cross fertilization between them. But they, at the time, you'll find story after story. Like, I don't like it because I'm being poisoned. I don't like it because I'm being cheated. And even that label, poisoned or cheated, was quite common in the 1800s. 
Now, for me, what I find most interesting about uh, that, and it gets a little uh, wonky, so I tried to minimize the full discussion of this in the book, but for me, both of those concerns assume that the question is a matter of consumer identity. They're both on the consumer end of the life cycle process. They still don't attend to the environmental agricultural context that grows these foods. It's more like now that you're a consumer and you're buying it, am I poisoned or am I cheated? So even those two questions are on one half of an argument. And um, because they're so thorny and difficult, they've absorbed so much attention that uh, we've, we've forgot about the other half of the agricultural and the environmental context that even got us to the foods so that we could be worried about being poisoned or cheated. All right, so Deborah, you have uh, questions. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for organizing this. Uh, Benjamin, thank you for sharing. <laughs> I'm a curator at the Henry Ford. We have a Heinz collection. We've been cool. busy digitizing some photographs that show almost a gang labor approach to the farms that they contracted with and or owned to produce items. So this, this book is really timely because I've been trying to figure out how to spin the interpretation of those images oh. beyond you know, a different approach to agriculture. Uh, so I'm looking forward to reading your book. Oh, good. And I hope I, you know, um, Gabriella Petrick has written about Heinz in a couple of articles too. And she'll, yeah, she has a lot to say on this. I think that would be helpful. That's great. I will look that up. Um, my question though, if you could put on your beyond 1906 hat for a moment. We also have uh, collections of Carver material, George Washington Carver, and then the alliance that he and Ford develop over Kimmergy and synthetic foods. So right. I'm wondering if the science sort of being the legitimizer of purity, the next step of that is that you're not creating a cotton seed oil to adulterate olive oil anymore, but it becomes its own credible but synthetic food source. I, yeah. I, quick answer. That yes. Sense. I agree. I think, I think that's right. Um, especially if you think of the cotton seed oil example, for those who have read the book, they know this. And also um, Helen Zoe White at Michigan State has written about cotton seed oil uh, because that's what Crisco is. And um, Crisco is a, a Oh, what did I, I forgot the name? Uh, not a neologism, not a acronym. Crisco is a, is a term that stands for crystallized cottonseed oil. That's what the word Crisco is. Um, and so there had been other products like Cotyline was a product that was uh, from the 1890s. And um, both Crisco and, oh, thank you, Jessica. God, what's wrong with my man? A portmanteau. Um, uh, Crisco, Cotyline, um, these were products of the meatpacking industry. Uh, you know, Crisco is from Procter & Gamble, so not meatpacking, but meatpacking adjacent. Uh, uh, Procter & Gamble, you know, starts in, in Cincinnati when that was still Porkopolis. Um, but most of the other cottonseed oil ones were um, uh, either against the uh, contamination with, with cottonseed because it was cutting into their profit or they were embracing it and making their own version by developing contracts with Southern farmers to use discarded cottonseeds, which had, they called it the Cinderella of the South, like before the Civil War, nobody cared. And after the Civil War, they, they got into their mind that they shouldn't be wasting this, this so-called byproduct. 
So by the time you get up to the 1920s and 1930s, it does become its own, like it's it's uh, purely fake. It kind of confuses the terms. Um, I, I even talk about a margarine brand, which is called purity brand margarine. So they're really taking it to the consumers. They're like, no, this is purely artificial, um, which is not a conversation that would have happened 50 years before that, but it had become normalized where pure meant it's exactly what we say it is as opposed to purity as in some agriculturally embodied process. So because it had become scientized, we could say, no, this cottonseed oil is exactly what we said it was. Stop worrying about whether it's lard or not. We're not even saying it's lard. We're just saying it's shortening. It's good for cooking. Um, so I, I think you're you're right on, Deborah. You've, you already have the sense of it. I think it ties nicely into this uh, discussion of branding too. I mean, how scientific, natural, they take on different connotations uh, and being used in strategically also in, in over time in this process. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about gender because we had a couple of gender terms that show up. So con man, housewife. Uh, could you say something more about this? Where, anyway, was this kind of this, this uh, stereotypical discussion? Uh, did you have con women also? Um, what did you have a, a variety of, uh, well, I wouldn't say a variety of, but, uh, the people also working for food safety, um, was that a gendered role too? Could you say something more there? Yeah. Um, I've, and you pointed out something that always fascinated me too, that in the literature, it was always, it is always con men. <laughs> they aren't always men, but the term sticks and the, the label of housewife is either at the time was meant as um, a point of, of pride to elevate it as a kind of profession or a point of diminishment to say, well, um, you know, like just a housewife, things that I think still linger. Um, so at the time, the, the spokespeople were also playing with those divisions and it wasn't clear if it was better or worse. Um, I'm thinking of another con man story. There's one in the sugar chapter, in the glucose chapter, where this guy uh, who went by the name Professor Henry Friend um, was, was running a fake sugar scam with glucose and um, other variations of fake sugar in Brooklyn. He had a company called the Electric Sugar Refinery Company, which is an awesome band name um, if anybody wants it. Uh, where he was playing straight into the Edisonian context of like, we've got, I've got the special secret process that refines raw and dirty sugar into high grade quality sugar. And the only reason I bring this up as a gendered example is that um, he, he passed away uh, from uh, alcoholism before they caught his scam. And in fact, people didn't believe it. They thought he like escaped and was faking his death. Um, but they eventually tracked down the police, tracked down the family because his wife was running the factory and once they got caught, like she bolted and went back to Michigan where, where she was from. And uh, there was this whole dragnet operation and they found him and tracked him down. And it was um, his wife and another man's wife um, who was one of the uh, principal um, investors that helped make it happen. But in all the reports, like he got sent to jail and he got busted for it. And the two women um, were let off because they assumed that they had been sullied by the men, that the women were pure. The women were just dragged into this thing and so they weren't con women. Um, so I never found out. I don't have enough material. I'm like, was that actually true? Like, did they really have nothing to do with it? Um, or did they benefit from this false narrative of, well, it's the men who are the, the crooks 
And these women, pure as the driven snow, of course, um, they were only pulled into this scam. They would have never done this on their own. All right, so we have time for one last question then. So I'm just gonna play off then the question from uh, Christine in the chat here about you know, <laughs> the, the meta aspect of, of making a book because you know, most of us who participate in this chat are at times struggling with book manuscripts, trying to get them through the process. So, uh, so for your book, how do you feel that worked? I mean, um, one thing we haven't seen your book, we haven't gotten our copy yet. So do you have a lot of images uh, also? You were talking about uh, you know, drawing on this variety of, of sources and approaches. Does that show in the book also? And how how is that working? Yes. Um, I, uh, part of the answer, I think, may be less Chicago-specific. It might be more second book-specific. Um, so like what you've gone through too, Christine, with your press and with your work, um, where I was more aware in the contract negotiations to say, I want 60 images you know, which I didn't even know to say in the first one. I didn't know that was a thing that you had to pay attention to. And then even then it was a negotiation of, well, can it be that awesome thing where they have like the color ones in the middle? Like there's the nice shiny pages. We've got the color pictures and that wasn't going to happen. So I went for, for quantity. So they're all black and white images, but you know, they're pretty good. Um, but that was like one just kind of like tactical thing of like, oh, I'm aware that this is something to ask for that I should negotiate to have more images. Um, I have a uh, an edited book coming out this summer and it's with MIT and we can only have like 12. We argued, I think, for 14. <sighs> like, so they, um, I don't know. Uh, Dolly, do you know, does this feel like an MIT thing? Like they don't like as many images? I, I mean, mine was the, was the same, basically. I mean, I think I ended, I think I have 12. Um, so it, yeah. it, that was kind of a, a standard. I mean, they didn't tell me like oh you need to take away some images they didn't say that but they I, I think they would have if i would have said oh i wanted a bunch more than that right so. and i mean i don't know others experiences here but when i um was looking for a, a publisher for the book uh you know 2014 2015 uh, i remember being told or having the sense like oh chicago is trying to push much more into environmental history at the time i already knew they were very strong in the history of science just from graduate school days, so many of the books that I had read were history of, were, were Chicago books. So I actually never went back to check, was that true? Or did somebody, did like Egan just, Michael Egan just tell me that? Like, did somebody just say that? Or was it actually true that they're moving more into environmental history? But I, I guess in retrospect, it must be true because there are so many, um, they do seem to have a lot more books. Um, I guess maybe I, I couldn't tell until your question, Christine, if that was just me, like when you hear a word that you never heard and then you hear it everywhere, like, oh, people were always saying that. I just wasn't paying attention. Like now that I'm paying attention to Chicago books, I don't know if it's more or if it's just that I'm paying more attention or like it's easy for me to get them. They'll send me one. Yeah, I mean, I, th there is a certain landscape, though, that is out there. I mean, there are particular presses that are doing, you know, environmental stuff that's uh um, you know, or trying to have new environmental series. I think that's where it often shows up that you end up with a series and a series editor, um, which will change over time too, as those series either blossom or die, I guess. Some series kind of do go away. Um, so it's, it's something that, uh, yeah, it's always a changing landscape. Um, but I think that uh, it's, 
it's good to, to um, yeah, to find which press works for you and in the particular book that you want to make. And is that right. something that they're enthusiastic about? I think makes a huge difference, at least for my book, it did. Um, the MIT Press and, and Beth, who is the, um, you know, acquisitions editor was very enthusiastic about it. So I felt yeah. good about it matters it so there. much. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, it's a longer answer too. where I, my first book was with Yale and I thought that the second one would go with them and they just weren't as, they didn't seem to get it or they weren't as enthusiastic. They offered me a contract, but it just didn't feel right. And so I kind of got lucky that I met um, Karen at an ASDH um, conference and she asked me to send it to her. And so I think a lot of it was just fortune of, of timing and um, having learned a few things on the, on the first book. I will say my biggest argument with them because they didn't have many was I was so committed to the cover image of being the three-headed Hydra. This is preface, uh, the, the frontispiece is this monster with the three heads on it, which I've used in every talk I've given. And it's the, the three heads of the Hydra, the three case studies in the middle of the book. And for 10 years, like I just assumed that's the cover. And they're like, no, it doesn't, it's not going to play well. You can't do that. And I went back and forth. I was like, no, you have to do that. I'm committed to it. And, um, then they gave the other cover, which everybody loves. And so now I have to admit like, oh, that was a pretty good one too. Don't tell them I said that because I don't want to admit being wrong. <laughs> but that was like our one argument is I really wanted a different cover. And yeah. by that point, it's like, that's pretty small potatoes. Like the amount of work for a book and that's the thing I'm arguing about. It was, you know, in retrospect, that was pretty petty of, of me, not them. Yeah. And, and a lot of times the, the solutions that they come up with for things like that actually do work out better. I mean, I had the same thing with the title of my book. So um, <laughs> where, where it got worked on and, and changed, but I, I'm happy with where it ended up in the end. So. Yeah. All right. We need to wrap up because we have spent our hour. So thank you to everyone for coming, um, especially to you, Ben. Uh, this was fabulous. 